All right, I'm glad you're here. Good afternoon. I told you last night that you, there are a number of ways you can divide up the, the Psalms. You can divide it up by the, the various authors and, and consider it from that standpoint. Uh, you can look at it from the categories of Psalms. I didn't really mention this too much last night, but there are, are, are Psalms of all different kinds. Uh, one, of, one of my favorites are imprecatory Psalms. Uh, that's a fancy word that says that those are the prayers that you pray when you want God to get after somebody. And, uh, and, and I, I, years ago, I had somebody in my first church, and uh, she came and she said, I just, I've just been reading these imprecatory psalms that you mentioned in, in your sermon. And, and she said, I just, I'm just not sure those should be in the Bible. I mean, I mean, he's praying for God to break people's bones and to... And, and, and to judge them and, and do all of these things. And I said, I said well, have you, ever, have you ever had somebody that you just, you just wanted to ask God to just jerk them up and get them right? And she said, well, yeah. I said, okay. The Psalms are a reflection of the human condition. There is a Psalm for every situation. And frankly, uh, we've been raised in, in sort of a, a southern, lower Midwestern culture that, that, that makes it really a sin to not be nice. And yet we get to the Psalms and sometimes we find out that um, the real sin is being tolerant of things that God's not tolerant about. So there, there are lots of ways to come at the Psalms. The, the simplest and most straightforward way is, is what I'm going to try and do over the next three days. And it's just to take the, the, the Psalms as the books that they're divided into. Um, today we're going to look at book one. You see the title on your outline, The Foundation of the Messiah's Promise. We're going to see those twin themes that are introduced with Psalms one and two. The idea of the Torah, the blessing of God's word that is available to us and the coming king, and the blessing that there is in knowing that God uh, has history mapped out, and that he has a plan that will unfold to our benefit. In the first book, uh, and, and, and this is really uh, the longest book, we'll just look at this one today, but there are, are the themes of, of the Torah, the blessing of the Torah, and the blessing of the king are played out in these chapters. I'm really going to zero in on a collection of poems that begin with Psalm 15 and end with Psalm 24. You see the way I've outlined these, these psalms. Uh, this section, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, are kind of bookends. And they are calls to covenant faithfulness. In other words, they are psalms that call us to live uh, in accordance with the covenant that God has made with His people. To be faithful for, with the life that God has invited us to. Within those two bookends, 15 and 24, uh, I, I've listed the next point, the, the once and future king. There are two sets of, of, um, of poems that are within this, this collection that talk about David as the model of that kind of covenant faithfulness. Now, when we look at, verse, at chapter 16 through 18, 
what we find is that David is the historical model of faithfulness. We look back and see a man who walked the walk that God called him to. Now, every time somebody brings up David, there's always a person obligated to say, oh, well, what about Bathsheba? You know, we live in a cancel culture today, which is a culture that, that really concludes that if you have ever made one major mistake at any point in your life, and sometimes now even a minor mistake, you're unuseful. You, you have to be canceled. That's why we tear down the, uh, the statues of Thomas Jefferson. We say, well, he owned slaves, and so we can't take anything he said. And we reject the idea that Thomas Jefferson was probably the most intellectually brilliant president the United States have ever ha has ever had, the author of, uh, of, of our founding documents, a man who made contributions that have, uh, that, that have had impact for centuries. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. Was David perfect? Absolutely not. Can you think of anybody that was perfect? And yeah, well, we've already canceled Jesus because he's perfect in a way that really makes us uncomfortable. You think we don't like Thomas Jefferson? We hate Jesus. Our culture does. So the, the reality is David is idealized a bit. Uh, there, are, there are things about David's life that, that uh, are a shame. The Bathsheba event and the murder of her husband Uriah, uh, those are horrible crimes. It's what the Pharisees would centuries later call a high-handed offense against God. In other words, the kind of sin that puts you in direct opposition to God. Not a, a minor uh, mistake or uh, an unfortunate choice or a bad decision, but a fully conscious decision to act in a way that rejects what you know God wants. So David is guilty uh, by, by Hebrew standards of being a man of, in high-handed rebellion against God. And yet, we've been given Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, which shows both in the heat of passion, in the, in the immediate moment, David was desperately repentant of his sin. And Psalm 32 showing us that upon more mature reflection years down the road, he looked back and kept his promise to God that he would inform the generations behind him about the consequences and the dangers of sin. David was not a perfect human being, but in his sin, he still provides a great model because of his repentance. Uh, my New Year's resolution this year, I don't probably not a resolution it's just kind of a a thing that I that I do every year to try and keep it in the front of my brain and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back because if I was already good at this I wouldn't need the resolution but my resolution this year was was that that God would help me every day this year he would help me repent quickly and forgive fully David is a model of that David sinned in outrageous ways, but he repented with intensity. And David, remember, was the guy that was being chased by Saul 
and yet had such confidence in God that he refused to touch the Lord's anointed. He left his circumstances in God's hands even when he had the opportunity to, to change them by his own actions. So I, I say all of that to just set the stage. In book one, really the focus is David. Uh, he is a historical model of faithfulness. We'll look at, 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 uh, at one of the, the Psalms about that. But in, those, in those, that second section of, of point two, Psalms 20 through 23, the writers now compose poems that point to David as an idealized image of the future messianic king. In other words, we look back to David and we find the model of covenant faithfulness, and then we look forward in anticipation of the day that a greater David will come and put covenant faithfulness on display at an, in an even more powerful way. You see, the coming king, he didn't have to repent quickly or with intensity because he never sinned. He showed us what human life was supposed to be like. We'll see that in those, in those verses. And then you've got 15 and 24 as, as bookends. You've got these two collections, 16 through 18 and 20 through 23, as, uh, as hymns related to, to the historic David and the, the idealized David. And then right in the middle of all of this is Psalm 19. And I've called that point general and special revelation. But in all, right in the middle, right in the heart of all of these psalms, that talk about the king, the original model, and the future coming king. And in, in right smack dab in the middle of these psalms about the king is a psalm that celebrates God's gift of his word to his people. So you see, in book one, the heart of book one is built around the two pillars, the two foundational themes that we saw last night in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2. So, go to Psalm 15, a call to covenant faithfulness, and, uh, and we'll see what we can, can discover here. The, um, this psalm is, uh, starts with an interesting question. Lord, who may reside in your tent? Who may settle on your holy hill? One who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil to his, to his neighbor, nor bring shame on his friend. A despicable person is despised in his eyes, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. He does not lend his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. One who does these things will never be shaken." I taught Psalm 15. This is one of the few places where I'm going to double up. Last fall on Wednesday evenings as I was teaching through the Psalms, I, uh, I taught Psalm 15. But I, it, it, it's so important here in the flow of, of the entire book that I, I, want, to, I want to touch on it again. Uh, verse 1, Lord, who may reside in your tent? Basically, we could summarize that in, in our language and say, Lord, uh, who is acceptable as a guest in your house? The answer is one who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. The man who would sit at God's table must live a consistent life which stands up under the scrutiny of God himself. Now that should be a little intimidating to us, but 
he goes on to explain what that looks like. A man who walks with integrity and practices righteousness and speaks truth. How do you define that? Well, that's where these verses go. He defines it in the negative. He says a man of integrity, a man who speaks truth, a man who practices righteousness, that is, practices the deeds that reflect the nature of God, that kind of man has a list of things that he doesn't do. He doesn't slander with his tongue. That is, he doesn't speak falsely to hurt the reputation of another person. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Actually, the word here is interesting. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. Um, it's, the word, it, it's the word, in, the Hebrew word here translates into the Greek word porneo. It's where we get our word pornography. It means to speak lewdly or with moral corruption. In other words, the Lord doesn't want at his table anybody who speaks against other people uh, in, a, in a crude kind of way. The Lord doesn't invite those who tell dirty jokes or who share stories that reveal an unclean heart or an, an interest, an obsession, a passion for things that God is not fond of. He says he does not bring shame on his friend. That is, he doesn't gossip or pass along stories about another person. I saw a story one time about those tabloids that are at the checkout stand at the grocery store you know every story in there is made up they're all fake and yet they sell by the millions I saw an, uh, an interview years ago on 60 minutes where they asked people they stood in a grocery store and as people would pick that up and buy it they'd ask them on the way out of the store they said do you do you believe the stories that are in that magazine and almost a hundred percent of the time they said no I don't believe them, but they're a lot of fun to read. See, gossip and fake news, uh, there's a real attractiveness there. And, and, and the one who walks with God uh, doesn't allow himself to be subject to that kind of information that we put in our minds. Paul tells us that we're to take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. That means that for most of us, the, the introductory battle of spiritual warfare happens between our ears. The enemy only has two strategies. Intimidation, where he tries to scare you and overpower you. And deception where he tries to slip in unnoticed and mess up the way you think. Because if you think in ungodly ways, you produce a life that practices ungodly behavior. Well, this man thinks, the man that's acceptable to God thinks like God. That is, a despicable person is despised in his eyes. He sees people accurately for the way they are. Now, when it says a despicable person is despised, he's not saying that God has hatred for those who are not his um, and that we should too. But it does mean that God has an accurate assessment of every human being. And those who are not in the family, who have rejected the invitation of Christ, those are people that God sees as as enemies. Now the invitation to salvation is still there. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God reaches out to those that are on the other side. But, but we are despicable until we are brought to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we hate the people around us, but it means that we think God thoughts so that we accurately assess the people around us. And when somebody here, let me give you a perfect example. And this is this every time I, I talk about this, uh, somebody gets upset. But but here's a perfect example. Our culture has decided that homosexuality is acceptable, not only acceptable, but it's normal. We hear that all the time. In fact, I don't think there is a regular married couple in any commercial anymore. Because we have to normalize this behavior that God says is an abomination to him. And yet, I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people who say, but you know, my son or, 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 or the son of a friend of ours or a co-worker, you know, they're, they're just such nice people. And, 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 and they're practicing homosexuals, but, but, but you know, they're, but, he, but he's a good guy. You see, without knowing that guy at all, what I know from that conversation is you're not assessing the reality of the situation from a godly perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that you hate that person. It doesn't mean that you throw them under the bus. It doesn't mean that you give them the cold shoulder and refuse to talk to them. But you have to be able to say, this is a good guy, and it's a shame that he's practicing an ungodly behavior. That's what this verse means. To, to be in the presence of God is to be able to ass assess reality the way that God assesses reality. He says that this man has to, uh, will, will sometimes uh, take an oath to his own detriment, verse 4, and he will not change. He does not lend his money at interest. Let me tell you what's so fascinating about Psalm 15. In its context, it is a call to covenant faithfulness. In other words, it's a call to get up every morning and determine that today I'm going to live a life that will reflect my acceptability to be at God's table. Now we understand, uh, don't, don't misunderstand, this is not a works righteousness. This is not making myself right with God by what I do. But, but, it is, but our, our actions are reflections of the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And so to say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm invited to sit at the, at the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb someday. Well, listen, I, I want to be able to sit there having prepared myself as best I can so that I'm not embarrassed to be in that place. What's fascinating about this psalm is not only it's called a covenant faithfulness, but I am fully convinced that Psalm 15 was the text that Jesus used for his Sermon on the Mount. Think about it this way. I'll give you these if you want to look them up later. But if you look at Psalm 15.1, it compares to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. That's the introduction. Uh, so Psalm 15, 2 compares to uh, Matthew 13 through Matthew 5, 13 through Matthew 6, 34. For example, he says, uh, who may, who, the one who walks with integrity. Well, 
in the Bible, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the one who's walking in the light. He says, practices righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, you won't, you won't be there. He says, the one who speaks truth in his heart. From Matthew 5, 21 to 6, 34, Jesus talks about truth in your heart. He says, uh, you, your heart can't be marked by hatred or adultery or, 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 or false generosity. There has to be prayer and fasting and, and, and your heart follows where you put your treasure and your heart leads you into service and your heart produces rest. In Psalm 15, 3, compare that to Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5 and Matthew 5 verses 43 through 48. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye? Love your enemies. Verse 4 of this psalm can be compared to Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Here he says, the one who takes an oath to his own detriment and does not change. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Verse 5 in this psalm says he doesn't lend his money at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. In Matthew 5, 38 to 42, he says, give to him that asks you. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he tells us that the wise man is the one who builds his house upon the rock. I'm fascinated by this comparison, and I truly believe that Psalm 15 is the text for the Sermon on the Mount. Someday open Matthew 5 through 7 and put Psalm 15 next to it and just walk through a meditation of what that means. Because clearly if Jesus preached on this text, his sermon is the best possible commentary on what this psalm means. Psalm 24, the other bookend. Quickly, um, what, what's so great about this psalm, look at the first couple of verses. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Why does the earth belong to the Lord? Because he has the power and the right, the, the right to claim creation as the creator. What's interesting here is that that the psalmist typically lived in, a, in generations where they were surrounded by nations who worshipped localized deities. For example, you find stories in the Old Testament where, where, um, where even Israel would, would take the Ark of the Covenant into battle on foreign soil because they wanted the power of God to go with them outside of their borders. The Philistines were, 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 were really com committed to this. The idea was that, that we're always weaker outside of our borders because our gods are limited to the boundaries uh, of their territories. And yet the psalmist comes here in Psalm 24 and makes an audacious claim, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. There's no localized or limited area of geography here. He is never confined to some sanctuary or even a geographical region. This is a broad and sweeping confession that God has dominion that is unchallengeable. And it covers the entire earth. And that rulership was established by his position as creator. Listen, Psalm 24 is a great place for you to go when you find yourself thinking wrong thoughts about God.
Because this psalm raises the bar and calls us to recognize that God is beyond any uh, seeming competition. There's nothing that should have our loyalty because this God is the great God. He says in verse 3, who may ascend onto the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? One who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to deceit. You see, it's the bracket that goes with Psalm 15 because the question is, and it's a vital question, uh, who is it that can be found acceptable to God? Now you say, well, listen, we are New Testament believers. We are acceptable to God not by our behavior. We are acceptable to God by our relationship to Jesus Christ. You are absolutely correct. And yet, our relationship to Jesus Christ, whether it's James or, or other writings in Paul, uh, our relationship to Jesus Christ is not the result of our good works, but if that relationship is true, if it's accurate, if it's a real thing, good works are the natural overflow of that. And so it is still a concern for us. We're not working for God as though we're trying to earn our way so that he lets us in. That's Islam. Islam is you got to serve Allah and you got to do all the right things and you hope that, that when the day comes, he'll wave you in. But you don't know till you get there. That's not the Christian life. We have certainty and we have security, but we also do not have the laziness that says, I've got my ticket punched. I can now live any way I want. Paul corrected uh, believers who were, who were practicing sin because they had perverted this idea of God's grace. And, and they said, you know, because God forgives us every time we sin, the more we sin, the more God forgives. So the more glory he gets because he's a forgiving God. Paul says the answer to that is meganoito. That's a Greek phrase that loosely translates hell no. No. We don't sin more so that we can receive more grace so that, can, so that God can get more glory. That's a twisting uh, of the truth. The fact of the matter is when his grace adopts us into the kingdom, we now are called, invited actually empowered for the first time in our lives to begin to live a life that looks like our father you ever seen you ever seen the little kid in the backyard dad is mowing the grass he's pushing the lawnmower and trailing behind is the little one with one of those bubble mowers Diane took a picture of that when 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 my kids were little uh, I'm mowing the grass and and the bubble mowers right behind me in the same, same strip that I'm cutting. You know why that's cute? Because it is a natural inclination in the heart of a child to want to be like daddy. The reality of your relationship to Jesus Christ can be reflected in just how serious you are about looking like your father. That's what Psalm 24 calls us to. Well, those are the bookends. Psalm 16 through 18. Obviously, I can't spend time in all three of these, but let's just look at, at Psalm 16 and, uh, and start there a bit. Um, psalm 16 is uh, a psalm of thanksgiving, but it, it's a psalm 
that um, talks about, um, about what a godly man looks like. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. You say, now, I thought you said this is about the king. Understand this psalm is written by David. It is about David. Remember I told you uh, the 16 through 18 are, are the psalms of, of David as a historical model of faithfulness. Well, this is not a narrative about him. These are David's words, and we see his faithfulness being uh, displayed here. Verse 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. The pains of those who have acquired another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. In other words, what we have here is David outlining the holiness of his life. He lives in the Lord's presence, that's verses 1 and 2. He loves God's people, that's verse 3. And he lives not by the standards of his culture, but by the precepts and the laws that the Lord has given him. That's verse 4. Look at the result, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless the one who I will bless the Lord who has advised me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. He says, I am, uh, I, am I have standing in the Lord. He is my portion. That is, that is, he is uh, the part of what has been handed to me as an inheritance. Verse 6 is the language of faith. He says, the measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. In other words, he said, I, remember David was anointed as a, as a very young man as the coming king of Israel. But years passed between his anointing and the actual time when he was seated upon the throne. And yet looking back, he says that God's timing is perfect. You know, when we walk through life, it, it feels like we are just curves and, and twists and turns and, and we just, we, we never know what comes next. We can't see what's around the corner. And, and, it, and life feels like we're just sort of aimlessly trying to find some, some destination. But my experience has been when you turn around and look behind you, it looks like a straight line from where you started to where you are. You see, life feels chaotic and uncertain until you review and then you realize from the moment you met the Lord, every step has been guided so that you get to precisely the place that he wants you to be. You see, the Bible tells us that God says he is the author and the finisher. He's the starter and the completer of our faith. That doesn't mean that he brought us into the faith and then said, like a, a mother eagle pushing her baby out of the nest and saying, good luck. That's not God. God is the one who adopts us and then guides us. From our perspective, things sometimes look chaotic. They look uncertain. We never know what comes ahead. But that's why memory, I think, is a Christian virtue. We took the Lord's Supper yesterday morning, and, and it's a ritual of memory. Because memory is when we, when we pause and look behind us and see the testimony of God's 
God's work in our lives. The Old Testament is filled with memorials where they where something significant happened, and they brought stones together, and they built a, 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 a mound of stones so that for the generations following, people would say, what happened here? And they would relive the stories. Because life feels random, accidental, until you look behind you. And then you realize that there's nothing random about it. God knows where he picked you up, and he knows where he's going to drop you off. And it's a straight line in his eyes from where we started to where we finish. Well, I'd love to spend more time in, in, in Psalm 16, but, but let's, go, let's go to Psalms 20 through uh, 23. Uh, these are where we turn to the future king. If David was our model uh, for, uh, in, in his life, in historically, then as uh, he becomes the jumping off place, he becomes the idealized image of the future king. So these psalms are, are powerful because they tell elements of what we can expect from this future king. Psalm 20 is a psalm, a poem about um, military victory. May the Lord answer you on a day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and accept your burnt offerings. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your whole plan. We will sing for joy over our victory, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your desires. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some praise their chariots and some their horses. But we will praise the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us on the day we call. You see, they're looking forward to a day not like the kings of Israel and Judah so often in the Old Testament kings that trusted in chariots and horses, kings that cut deals and, 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 and established treaties with, with pagan enemy kings. There'll be a king one day who understands that the source of his strength comes from above, and he will cry out to God. I'm going to teach beginning um, a week from Wednesday. On Wednesday nights, I'm going, I'm going to teach the life of Hezekiah. I haven't taught a, a biographical series in a couple of years, but I love, I love studying the Bible that way. And Hezekiah uh, was a king who had some flaws, as all human beings do, but he was a king in the face of the greatest superpower of his generation, the Assyrian army. They came and they swept Israel off of the map. The ten northern tribes disappear into history. They are carried away into captivity, but scattered to the winds, never to be reassembled. That same Assyrian army then came to attack Judah, where Hezekiah was king. And in one of the most powerful moments in the Bible, the king of Assyria sends his representative who stands outside the gates of Jerusalem 
and spits in the face of God with his words. And Hezekiah's response, God, did you hear what he said? And we'll see in the life of Hezekiah that in that encounter, an army that had been undefeated, that had swept across the map, destroying every nation in its path, got right up to the gates of Jerusalem, and God himself miraculously executed 185,000 enemy soldiers, and the mightiest ruler of the day turns tail and runs home because he finally found an opponent he couldn't beat, and it was the God of Israel. You see, this future king understands that, and he cries out for, for victory. Psalm 21, this king is a conquering king. Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked for life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the faithfulness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. You see, they're writing, the psalmist is writing here about David, but he's taken the historical David and he's, and he's flash-forwarded him to the future and he's idealized him. He's made David perfect. Well, what's he really done? He's described Jesus Christ. Didn't know his name, but he described the one who would have majesty and glory, who would have endless days who would speak to his people and they would respond with confidence in him because he could be trusted. A conquering king. Verse 22, I mean, Psalm 22, even more than the two that we've just touched on, Psalm 22 is an explicitly messianic psalm. There is no question that the writer is contemplating here not just David made perfect but he is contemplating the anointed one that will come now maybe you've never noticed or read Psalm 22 I want to just read some verses and I want you to to take what you know of the life of Jesus and see what where this connects Psalm 22 my God my God why have you forsaken me you see on the cross, Jesus was not only confessing the agony of the moment when he became sin for us and God turned away and broke fellowship for the first time in eternity so that wrath could fall on sin. Jesus was not only communicating his experience in the moment, he was quoting Psalm 22 verse 1. In Greek, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you turned your face? We live a life such that we can go days or weeks sometimes without real fellowship with the Lord. We call it backsliding. That's the old 
the old church term from when I was a kid. But see, for us, we then hear a sermon or the Spirit speaks to us or, or something happens and, and then we call it rededication where we come back to the Lord and we say, Lord, I, I've been away for a time. But see, that separation before we came to Christ, that was our normal state of existence. And even when we sort of by negligence or by deliberate choice break fellowship as believers... It causes us grief. It, 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 it makes us miserable. But you have to understand, in that moment on the cross, something happened that had never happened in all of eternity. Jesus and the Father within the Trinity had never been separated. In fact, the message for this Sunday in John is a very difficult passage to, to understand but Jesus is making his argument that the proof of his Messiahship is his unbroken relationship with the Father. And he gives us evidence of how that uh, can, be, can be understood. Except on the cross. The wrath of God's sin. Not just a sin, but all of sin landed on Jesus Christ, who became sin for us. And in that moment, for the briefest second, while the atonement was settled, while sin was paid for, while justice was satisfied, God turned away. And Jesus experienced a blackness, a loneliness, he experienced the separation that is hell. And in that moment, as familiar as he was with all of the Word of God, it's this psalm that he turns to. Remember I said the psalms articulate every experience of the human condition. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you they cried out and they fled to safety. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a person, a disgrace of mankind and despised by the people." Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah 52 and 53, that, that he didn't have any great physical features to commend him, but that the people despised and rejected him. Verse 7 here, All who see me deride me, they sneer, they shake their heads, saying, Turn him over to the Lord, let him save him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. What did they mock Jesus about on the cross? If you're who you say you are, come down. Save yourself. Show us supernatural power. Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. I, have cast, I was cast upon you from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, for there is no one to help. Verse 15, 
uh, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery and my tongue clings to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Folks, part of the reason that I'm so confident that, that Christianity is true is because prophecy in the Old Testament is so eerily precise this is not um this is not the kind of prophecy that that the, you know nostradamus you ever read nostradamus's prophecies it's like reading the horoscope in the in in the in the morning newspaper you know oh today you'll you'll have a blessing that was unexpected well duh that can be interpreted a thousand different ways. It's never wrong because it's never specific. Old Testament prophecy. They pierce my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothes. This is God speaking through the psalmist about a day when a king is coming. And it will be ugly and shameful. But that is just part of the king's calling. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, a posterity will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to people who will be born that he has performed it. You see, the king who dies on a cross becomes the king to which people flock because they know that he's true and he's just. And the world will be made right. If I could put a theme on the book of Revelation, that would be it. Everything made right. That's the point of eschatology. God will not be sidetracked. Sin disrupted the original idea of God's creation in the Garden of Eden in almost the very earliest days, and yet sin will not win. We will be in a garden we will be in a relationship we will walk in the cool of the evening with our god this is the king that's coming but then there's ver then there's psalm 23 man psalm 23 we almost always think about psalm 23 from the perspective of the sheep the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he restores my soul we 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 come at psalm 23 from the perspective of the sheep and we say look at all these wonderful things that the lord will do for me now that's legitimate there's nothing wrong with that but what's fascinating about the 23rd psalm 
is when you realize that the names of God that are given throughout the Old Testament are often not translated or not left in the Hebrew as names of God. They're often translated. The same way last night, um, rather than in, in my version of the Bible, I, I talked about those five Psalms at the end. Rather than leaving the Hebrew word hallelujah, they translated it, praise the Lord. Well, that, that's accurate, but, but you, you don't realize maybe that praise the Lord is the word hallelujah. The same thing with the names of God. Often the names of God... Uh, there are some names of God that relate to God's nature or God's character. There are other names of God that relate to God's activity. A lot of times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew that is considered a name of God, and there are dozens of them, by the way, because even, even Yahweh is the name that comes closest, but there is no single name that can fully encompass who God is. So we have dozens of names that have been assigned to God because they capture some aspect of who he is or what he does. Most of the time, those names are translated. Um, and so we don't realize in the moment that it is a name. Psalm 23 is like that. And I don't have time to go into a lot of exegetical detail but I want to just highlight some of the names of God because you say, well, how does Psalm 23 point to uh, this coming king that we've been talking about? Well, it doesn't if you focus on the sheep, but let's talk about the shepherd. Okay? Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. It's actually the name Jehovah Ra'ah. It means the Lord is my protector. The Lord who is God over Israel. Later, Jesus who is the good shepherd, the creator of all who exists. Jehovah Ra'ah, R-A-A-H. Verse 2, oh, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need. This is the protector. Uh, verse 2, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores, oh, I, I'm sorry, I skipped over one. The Lord is my shepherd, I will not be in need. Uh, the traditional translation is, um, I shall not want. I will not be in need. I want to highlight that, that verse because this is the name Jehovah Jireh. J-I-R-E-H. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord shall provide. When he says the Lord is my shepherd, that means he's my protector. I will not have need. I will not be in need or I shall not want, meaning the Lord provides for me. Both my physical needs, we can find that in, in the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 6, 11, that we're to pray for our daily bread, but also our spiritual needs. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22 when God instructs Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. And in the, and, and in the, the, the voice of this probably young teenage son, he says, Father, we have the, the, the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And the answer was, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord himself will provide. You see, not just our daily bread, our physical needs, but he became flesh and dwelt among us. And the one who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the children of God. 
He provides for our spiritual needs. Jehovah Jireh, I will not be in need. I shall not want. He's my supplier. He lets me lie down beside quiet waters. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is our peace. This is the idea that we see in Judges chapter 6, verse 24, where Gideon is facing a crisis and he's consumed by the emotional distress before battle with the, Gideon, with the Midianites. And he meets Jehovah Shalom, the peace giver. He says he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Jehovah Rapha, R-A-P-H-A. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is our healer. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, Israel gathered at the bitter waters of Marah where they were confessing and repenting of their sin. And that is where Israel met Jehovah Rapha. They were healed by God there. There was a physical healing of their injuries and their diseases, but there was also an emotional healing of their hurts and their abuses and their pains. This psalm tells us that He is the Lord our healer. Then it says He guides me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of His name. Jehovah Sidkenu, T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U, the Lord is our righteousness. God meets our desperate need to have the guilt of our sin removed. It is a name given to the one who declares us righteous, not because we are righteous, but because he makes us righteous for his namesake. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. I fear no evil. Jehovah Nisi, N-I-S-S-I. Jehovah Nisi means the Lord, our banner. Think about it this way, banner or, or standard in the sense of, of the flag that an army flies. In the ancient world, where there were not walkie-talkies and, and electronic communication capabilities, vast armies communicated with flags. And if you were caught up in the battle, hand-to-hand -hand combat, surrounded by the enemy, if you felt like that you were on the verge of death because it seems like you were all alone in the fight, but you could look up and in the distance, you could see the flag of your army still flying. What you knew instantly was, I'm not by myself. I'm not all alone. The army is still engaged in the battle. The flag is still flying. What the psalmist is saying here is that I will have no fear because I know that this God who is my banner is the giver of courage. Boldness doesn't come because I've got any serious backbone in me. It comes because I fight in an army. And at any given moment, no matter how hard the battle rages around me, I can find the flag that says we have not surrendered. 
He says, you, your rod and your staff, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jehovah Shammah. S-H-A-M-M-A-H. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. I fear no evil, for you are with me. We get to the New Testament and we find that the prophet Isaiah prepared us for the coming of the Messiah with, a, with what we often term the Christmas name of Jesus. Emmanuel. God who is with us. Our God is not distant. He's not foreign. He's not absent. He is with us. Huh. Jehovah Shema. Then he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. Jehovah Mekadishkem. M-E-K-A-D-D-I-S-H-K-E-M. Mekadishkem. It means the Lord who sanctifies you. To anoint your head with oil was to formalize the calling that is on your life. Samuel anointed David with oil because he had been selected, chosen to be king over Israel. The psalmist here says that God anoints us. He sanctifies us because none of us are just passengers on a train waiting to arrive in heaven. We have been sanctified for a purpose. We still breathe in and out. Air enters and, 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 and leaves our lungs because God has a purpose for us. We have no holiness in which we can sanctify ourselves, but God Himself sets us apart in order for us to dwell in His presence and to be active in His army. He is the one who provides our sanctification. <laughs> Certainly goodness and faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life. And my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord forever. Notice Lord there is in all capital letters. That means it's the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. The promise keeping God. The God who is. And that is enough. One writer put it this way. So when the simple though sublime statement is made by a man or a woman that the Lord is my shepherd, it immediately implies a profound yet practical working relationship between a human being and his maker. It links a lump of common clay to divine destiny. It means a mere mortal becomes the cherished object of divine diligence. This thought alone should stir my spirit, quicken my own sense of awareness, and lend enormous dignity to myself as an individual. To think that God in Christ is deeply concerned about me as a particular person immediately gives great purpose and enormous meaning to my, meaning to my short sojourn upon this planet. Sometimes it's a real encouragement to read Psalm 23 from the perspective of the sheep and the to see all that God has in store for us, but there's real value to spending time meditating on Psalm 23 from the perspective of the shepherd and all that he brings and makes available to us. Well, right in the heart of that, and I'm not going to spend any time there, you can read it for yourself, right in the heart of this collection is Psalm 19. It's the psalm celebrating the Torah, wrapped 
uh, by these psalms about the king. Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses here. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much pure gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, that I will be innocent, and I will be blameless of great wrongdoing. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love verses 7 through 11. He gives the characteristics of the word of God. It is sufficient for any need that we have. It provides everything that we need. But then he makes it intensely personal when he gets to verse 12. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. He says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. In other words, Lord, even with your word, I find that that I am deeply flawed. There's something twisted inside of me. So let your word do its work and penetrate to the core of my being so that my life is worthy of the calling with which you have called me. Does this seem like I'm harping on the same thing over and over again? Fruitfulness comes from time spent in the Word of God. Boldness comes from confidence in the coming King of God. Father, thank You Your word continues to impress, to to draw, to inspire. Lord, I pray that as we follow this storyline, that the middle books will take us tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would implant these words in our hearts in a way that makes a real difference. Father, do not let the word be presented to us and then quickly carried away by the stresses of life. But give us a renewed determination to spend time in the Word, to meditate, to contemplate, to be transformed by it. Father, fruitfulness that comes from time in Your Word, boldness that comes from time in Your presence, let that be the mark of a people called Evergreen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.